Hey, this is the last coffee house. We are talking about books. We got books. Sam Harris reading list zero to one by Peter Thiel. So this was something. It was published in 2014. It was actually written with a former student who gained notoriety for the notes he took of one of Thiel's classes at Stanford Law. So, okay. But it's a basic business book, not to be overly alliterative. <laughs> Talking about business, talking about startups, entrepreneurship, and obviously Peter Thiel is one of those beacons from the top, those billionaire beacons who created and run some of the biggest companies in the history of the world. Thiel is, of course, known for PayPal. Pretty big deal. And so he's got some stuff to talk about. Okay, so content is chapter one. He brings up first an interview question that he always asks. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? Which is an interesting interview question if you have to come up with that on the spot. He said there are some pretty generic ones that people people come up with that don't work and annoy him uh so he talks a little bit about progress and what progress means and the single word for horizontal progress is globalization the single word for vertical progress is technology so this is the zero to one progress that he's talking about and i looked up his company palantir i think is his new company it's got some technical stuff going on there I've got some chunks here. Spreading old ways to create wealth around the world will result in devastation, not riches. In a world of scarce resources, globalization without new technology is unsustainable. For sure, I mean, obviously there's a carrying capacity of the resources on the planet, so technically all the excess people will just die off if we don't have sufficient resources for them, so that takes care of it. But it's interesting to think about it in those terms in that if you just have plain old-fashioned globalization without new technology to better utilize resources, then it's not going to lead to positive things. In the most dysfunctional organizations, signaling that work is being done becomes a better strategy for career advancement than actually doing work. Oh, how I've seen this, especially in the public sector. <laughs> it can absolutely become a cultural thing in a business. If you encourage certain types of behavior, then that's the behavior you're going to get. So he sums it up. This book is about the questions you must ask and answer to succeed in the business of doing new things. Thank you, Mr. Teal. He talks about the 90s, Mosaic becoming Netscape and the Netscape Navigator, the East Asian financial crisis of July 1997. He believes caused by crony capitalism and foreign debt. He recounts the euro launched in January 1999 and the dot-com boom that led to the dot-com bust. He talks about bringing up PayPal and this, the work that he did with on PayPal, which was is really good, all the stuff about that. He brings up ruthless people. He was talking about, I think he's going into culture and business culture and what your culture should be like. But he talks about ruthless people like Michelin star system, which I actually started watching these little shorts on different Michelin star restaurants around the world. And they're fast. Oh, I love them so much. It's so great because you really get to see how they work, the kinds of food they come up with, why they come up with the food they come up with and all that sort of stuff. But he talks about this particular chef, Bernard Loazzo, who was quoted as saying, if I lose a star, I will commit suicide. That is a little extreme. And ironically, or maybe not so much, he didn't lose a star, but he did end up killing himself in 2003 when a French dining guy downgraded his restaurant. I mean, that's the funny thing. It's the balance between that crazy, obsessive insanity that makes you super great, but not the insanity that makes you commit suicide if your restaurant gets downgraded. 
Not to be, that is so insensitive. Uh, Obviously, feeling out to any family that he might have had that he was neglecting by working so super hard. But still, it's it's a bad thing. I'm I'm sorry to take it lightly. In business, equilibrium means stasis, and stasis means death. Every business is successful exactly to the extent that it does something others cannot. And monopoly is a condition of every successful business. Some pearls. And that's the kind of cultural understanding when it comes to a business that led to the United States advancing as much as it did... And all of the increases in efficiency, especially through technology, that have been gained over the past several decades. Of course, when you have a black swan event run right into that, like a coronavirus, then it's going to have a significant impact on those things. Also, as he'll talk about later, when you have our European system that kind of leeches off of everybody else's success, then it's a problem as well. I'm just tossing the barbs out today. I don't know what the deal is. So Teal's a lawyer. I think he went to Stanford. I know I taught at Stanford, but he did clerk for a federal appeals court. And we have a quote here. Why did I take this? Oh, uh, quote, sometimes you do have to fight. Where's that? Where that's true, you should fight and win. There's no middle ground. Either don't throw any punches or strike hard and end it quickly. End quote. Good sentiment. Good sentiment. He quotes Capablanca, the chess grandmaster, in saying that you must study the end game before everything else. That's an excellent thing to keep in mind. Study the end game before everything else. So you have some direction. You know where you're trying to get. The U.S. prints In God We Trust on money. European Central Bank might as well print Kick the Can Down the Road on the Euro. (laughs) Europeans just react to events as they happen and hope things don't get worse. So he's saying that's a very different culture over there when it comes to that. And I, I tend to agree with him. And I think that there's a real European economic cyst that is kind of the backbone of this financial crisis. I'm not an economist. I'm no expert on any of this stuff. So you definitely have to take that with a grain of salt. But that's... At least what I think at this point, based on my limited information. Talks about how it's no surprise that entitlement spending has eclipsed discretionary spending every year since 1975. This is one of those things that I never realized until I really looked it up directly. And a lot of the graphs that I would see would just leave out the entitlement spending. And just talk about the military and how big that is and and other stuff. And then when I saw the real graphs that show the entitlement spending too, I was just like, what are we doing? That is such a huge proportion of the federal budget and i don't know into any individual state budgets i don't know how much of a proportion it is but it's so huge entitlement spending and that's just like that's not creating growth that's not being used for increased efficiency or anything like that that's just something that's just sitting there tepid so people can pull out of it and it's not even funded properly so so odd he brings up his philosopher matrix where he has he shows definite optimists indefinite optimists definite pessimists and indefinite pessimists as different kinds of of these particular philosophers. I think he mentioned Hegel, at least. Marx and some others. But so those are different approaches. Uh, He talks about, oh, this is a little funny anecdote about how Bacon... It's not funny. Oh my gosh, why am I being so morbid? Bacon caught pneumonia and died in 1626 while experimenting to see if he could extend a chicken's life by freezing it in the snow. So there's an irony, obviously, there. But Teal was talking about how indefinite life is and how we're trying to figure that one out, too. He said that we have to find our way back to a definite future, that that was something motivating the American experiment historically that we've kind of lost in the West. Not just America, but in the West in general. So we need a definite future that we have in mind. But we're going to need a cultural revolution to get there. He brings up the Unabomber, Kaczynski, and this idea of the trichotomy of the easy, the hard, and the impossible. And Kaczynski said that modern people are so depressed because the hard problems have already been solved, and the only ones left are the easy or the impossible. So the easy problems 
problems are the stuff that any toddler can do and the impossible problems you know are impossible but this leaves you depressed you don't have any hard problems to try to figure out anymore so what he was trying to do was destroy all the institutions so that people could start over and feel better about themselves again to go back through it <laughs> he has this quote from faust the few who knew what might be learned foolish enough to put their whole heart on show and reveal their feelings to the crowd below mankind has crucified and burned cheery thank you teal's law this is dubbed teal's law startup messed up at its foundation cannot be fixed and he was really a stickler on this point that if there are problems initially with a startup or a company then you don't want to deal with it if there are cracks in that foundation don't do it just find something else he brings up ownership possession and control this is the new socialism now they don't talk about as much government ownership of the means of production they talk more about cooperatives in, in corporations so that all the employees have a say in the operations of the corporation and own shares of the corporation all that sort of thing which i think is just such a ridiculous idea i mean there are some obviously you can try it anytime anybody can do it but people oh as teal points out giving everyone equal shares is usually a mistake people have different talents and different responsibilities and they have different opportunity costs and flexibility adaptability is the number one most important thing that we should have and be encouraged to have when it comes to the business sphere or anywhere else and you're not adaptable if everybody all the way down from the janitor to the ceo has a say in new business acquisition and where they should put their r&d budget i mean it's ridiculous and gets into company culture here where he talks about how silicon valley has a bunch of flash you know they've got like sushi chefs and, and massages on site and that kind of thing it sounds nice to me he brings up what was dubbed the paypal mafia which included some of the most impressive people in history like elon musk like the co-founder of linkedin the founders of youtube and peter thiel a bunch i mean think out of all seven of them they came up with billion dollar companies now i'm sure the pedigree of having worked at paypal probably helped a little bit when it came to their resume so <laughs> that had something to do with it but still uh, i mean that's impressive he worked at a new york law firm before he went into this whole venture capital business and building companies and he talked about how all the people there were very capable and smart and all that but they didn't care about working with each other they didn't like it very much it wasn't important to them and so he wanted to build uh, companies based on strong relationships people who actually liked being around each other not just at work and not just for work but people who really liked each other he talks about how companies shouldn't fight a perk war of course this is something that only the top companies have to deal with like offering all these perks like sushi chefs and stuff like that but he talks about how anybody who would be swayed by those things aren't the kind of people that you want anyway and that early staff should be as personally similar as possible i'm not sure how far this goes but he says personality wise they should be very similar and the best thing that he did was make every person in the company responsible for doing just one thing so defining those roles reduce the conflict that was a nice benefit of that but if everybody does just one thing they can really focus on it have fewer conflicts and things work well together brings up nerds versus salesmen so the science and engineering you can see the difficulty obviously in those jobs but when it comes to sales it's not obvious the difficulty that arises in that and brings up how the customer lifetime value must exceed customer acquisition costs so this is all about sales this chapter how viral marketing costs like a dollar marketing in general costs like a hundred dollars then there's this big dead zone for a lot of companies where you don't know what you're really getting out of it uh, then there are like regular sales that it's going to cost like a hundred grand and then complex sales for big companies that's going to cost like 10 million and he recounts this situation at paypal where they looked specifically for a 
cast of people that are going to make the most sense for early PayPal, and it was eBay sellers. eBay sellers have really high volume buying and selling, but there are only about 20,000 of these power sellers, so they courted them, and that was the base on which they built PayPal. Talks about man versus machine a little bit. Talks about Bostrom's ideas, which we're reading as well. That one's coming up. I'm just finish finishing Super Intelligence. That's Bostrom, right? But he says that computers can complement people, whereas other people just substitute for people. So we need machinery or technology that can be a complement. To illustrate this point, he brought up how PayPal was losing $10 million a month to credit card fraud when it was initially started, and that they would build these softwares because there were way too many transactions to actually be able to, you know, do by hand. <laughs> so they'd built this software, but the the people, the fraudsters, would be able to figure out new ways and adapt and evade the ways the software was figuring them out. And so they created this hybrid system called Igor, and in the hybrid system, the suspicious ones would get flagged, but then they'd go to a person, and a human would reflect on those to see if those were right or not. I'm sure now, this was written in 2014, I bet with all the technology now, uh, his company probably can just have software that doesn't does it better than people but this is the point here so and one thing he brought up was how uh solar panels uh really importantly like we had microchips that were you know moore's law it's growing exponentially but when it comes to solar panels those grow linearly so you haven't seen that kind of advancement in technology now a lot of people might say that it's not enough investment or something like that but there are a whole bunch of other things going on like the increase in fracking led to really cheap natural gas which has been a boon for the economy and for a Americans in general, but it could have impacted investment into like solar and alternative energy sources. But still, the underlying idea that he talks about here is the fact that you're not getting that exponential growth out of solar panels. You know, that's something that you don't really have. It's not ripe like computers were, you know, a decade ago. So you have to keep that in mind when everybody's talking just axiomatically about alternative energy sources and all this stuff. That somebody has to build it and it needs to be able to become more efficient and all that. And obviously, when it comes to electric cars, there's been a lot of advancement, but it's not something that's following a Moore's law. It's not something that's exponentially getting better. It's getting more efficient, more efficient, just like cell phones, more efficient, more efficient, but it's not something that's being blown out of the water and revolutionizing everything all over the place. And this is what he talks about, the myth of social entrepreneurship. If something is socially good, is it good for society or merely seen as good by society? So that's a question to keep in mind because a lot of this, especially now, this activist culture is just about that virtue signal of, yeah, environmental and all this nonsense and we don't really know is it good for society or is it just seen as good by people who don't really know what they're talking about. Like I said, he brings up Bostrom and the four options, the recurrent collapse, the plateau, the extinction, or the takeoff as options for our future. And that's pretty much the book. Peter Thiel, there you go. Uh, Co-written by his former student. What's my analysis? It's not especially complex, but the one thing to keep in mind, this is written episodically. There's more white space in this than most books. It's mostly like chunks of concepts rather than a really rigorous deep dive into all these ideas with a bunch of citations and all that stuff. It's got some fantastic anecdotes that are just fun to hear. It's got some of really the most interesting business axioms that I've seen anyway. I think he's got this oversized sense of the role of the genius founder. <laughs> he does have this section, and I forgot to mention but he has a section where he talks about celebrities and major founders like Jobs, you know, and I think he mentioned Bill Gates and those kinds of people. And that, along with a lot of the 
later machine and man stuff it just seemed it was really kind of vague and not especially useful but when it comes to the genius founder hypothesis i mostly subscribe to the daniel kahneman position that is it's mostly luck surrounded by a bunch of superstition so whatever worked out because you happen to be in the best place at the best time and have the best capabilities and it happened to work out and just explode then whatever was happening around that time you tend to attribute it to those things and then you create a culture around those which is really a superstition. Now that said, I mean, obviously a lot of these ideas probably have a huge impact on whether your business is going to be successful or not. You know, things like thinking about the end game and hiring people that like to be around each other, that you like to be around, not getting into perk wars, that kind of stuff. I'm sure all that is really helpful just in general. But overall, I mean, this is Peter Thiel. It was really interesting. I keep using that stupid word. I hate that word and I keep using it. I need to find better words for that, uh, for that sentiment. It was just really good to get these ideas from somebody who's so accomplished and has done so much just in the tech industry and for the American economy in general and who's doing so much good stuff now when it comes to his current company and was part of a culture that created the people who are at the tops of industry all over the place. I mean, obviously, he was an early Facebook investor and I think he still sits on the board or something on Facebook. But so it was great to get his perspective on all this stuff. I don't know how a applicable a lot of it is and how much of it is just basic axiomatic truths that you could get from any after school special kind of a thing i don't know that's a little that's not fair but a lot of them are pretty vague while a number of them are pretty direct and unique and i'm sure useful so overall this is it's a relatively short book too so and like i said a lot of white space so i think it's totally worth reading it's totally worth going through or you could just take the ideas as i presented them here and look into any ones that are in, that strike your fancy otherwise this was the last coffee house we talked about books we've got some more books coming and we'll see how it goes all right i hope all is well but whatever the case i will see you on the next one this is the last coffee house okay bye mm-hmm.